0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharminize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. (laughs) I'm Calvin.
0: And I'm Kelly Brown.
1: And today we're going to be talking about the true story of penicillin. All that and more on Let's Pharminize. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Today, we have Kelly Brown joining us again. We are really excited to discuss the true story of penicillin. So we've touched on penicillin a little bit in our curriculum here at school. However, I know that there's a lot that has been left off the table.
0: That's right. So I just kind of want to start off with asking you guys, what do you know about the discovery of penicillin?
2: Well, I know it was Fleming. That's honestly...
1: The yeah, I know Fleming's, the of mine. Fleming is, um, has a key role.
0: The traditional story, what's been passed down for everything, is, yes, it is Alexander Fleming. The story is that he goes, he works in a lab, he goes on vacation with his family, comes back, and some of the unwashed Petri dishes had bacteria in it and mold was growing in one. And around the mold, he noticed that the bacteria wasn't growing. He was like, okay, that's weird. So the story goes, he started studying and everything, and he generally gets the credit for penicillin. The antibiotic, which comes from the mold. So the conventional story was Alexander Fleming left his lab with his wife, Sarah, and four-year-old son, Robert, at the end of July 1928, shortly before his 47th birthday, and they went on a month-long vacation at their country home in Suffolk. During Fleming's absence, a colleague used the lab space while he was away, so he had two or three dozen seated culture plates on a workbench out of the sun and away from the work area to clear it off for this other person who was using his lab. And he returned in late August and inspected the petri dishes one by one and made note of anything interesting and then put them in an antiseptic bath. There were so many of the dishes that some were placed on top above the antiseptic. The story goes that a colleague stopped by to say hello and see Fleming's progress and he randomly chose a few dishes above the disinfectant to show him, and one caught his eye. In the dish was a blue-green mold and a sea of golden-yellow staphylococci with a clear halo of dead cells surrounding the mold where bacterial growth was inhibited. So this is what we know as the penicillin effect. So that's the traditional story in 1928. However, penicillin wasn't used as an antibiotic until a lot later, and there are other key people in this story that without them, we wouldn't have penicillin, the antibiotic. And those are Flory, Heatley, and Chain. Alexander Fleming actually worked on lysozyme before this serendipitous discovery of penicillin. So he discovered there was a substance that was in saliva on our eyes and in breast milk and that a lot of animals had that killed bacteria. So he wrote a bunch of papers on lysozyme. They didn't really get a whole lot of attention because it's like, okay, it kills bacteria, but it's not going to kill any of the really harmful bacteria. Interesting discovery, but... It didn't really make a lot of noise. So in a book by Eric Lacks, he calls Fleming the quiet Scot, and he writes about how Alexander Fleming was a professor, and probably not a very good one. He was very quiet, um very monotone and students are reported to say like if they could hear him, it was just like one note. So, um That sounds
1: familiar. Yeah, no. Yeah. I can't imagine what that no, would be like. No, that would be terrible.
0: So, even though his discovery could have been a lot more than it was, his delivery style just wasn't great. So, a lot of his work was widely ignored because either they couldn't hear him or he just didn't seem excited. I mean, about
1: if you it. can't sell what you're talking about,
0: right, exactly. So he did write um, about the discovery of penicillin, that conventional story that has been passed down like through throughout the years. He wrote about that and it was published. It wasn't really, didn't really make a whole lot of noise at that point either. But later it was discovered by, by Flory. Howard Florey became a professor of pathology at the Dunn School at Oxford in 1935. This happened after the death of a predecessor. His name was George Dreyer. So Dreyer was developing a vaccine for TB and in animal trials, it showed promise, but the information was actually leaked. So then it led to the premature publication of results. Oh, and geez. then the vaccine was found to not be effective in humans. So, ouch, <sighs> that one hurts. That but stings. So Flory's taken this guy's spot. And then Ernst Chain, he's a Russian Jewish descent. He came to Oxford in September of 1935. So they started working together. Chain kind of had the idea of a laboratory because he had worked in labs in Germany and how they run labs versus how they're doing everything at Oxford is drastically different. So Chain had this whole idea of there needs to be a hierarchy in the lab and he's honestly kind of a jerk to people who are below him. So not the most likable guy.
2: That was the same guy that had to... Information leaked, or is that
0: the other guy? Uh, no, so George Dryer was the one who had. Dryer was it? Okay. Yeah, he had his information leaked. We're done with him. though. That's just an interesting oh, tidbit. Yeah, good, Howard Florey took Flory's. his spot. Yeah. Okay,
2: Florey's Got it.
0: Florey and Chain are working together, and then they're joined by Norman Heatley. He came to Oxford around 1936. Heatley and Chain didn't really get along. In the book I was referencing, Florey is nicknamed the Rough Colonial Genius. Heatley is considered the micro master, and Chain is the temperamental continental.
1: They, uh, they, the other two have, like, such nice-sounding names, and he's just like, yeah, he's temperamental. He's did they a- give yeah. each I'm other sure. these nicknames? Is that what that's they did? That's
0: cute. Eric Wax, in his book detailing the discovery of penicillin, that's just what he nicknamed them. Uh, okay. And I, I really like it.
2: I was going to say, it might be even just, it, it was going to be something if it was just all these little passive-aggressive things, if, like, they just didn't like each other. You're just mm-hmm. such a micro-master, you know that? <laughs> just something passive-aggressive. Yeah,
0: the chain's nickname is really fitting, because, like I said, he was kind of a jerk in the lab. and also I'm a little interesting backstory for Chain. So he was from Australia, came over to Oxford, and there was this girl back in Australia who he was like all right, I love her, like, she's the one for me, wrote all these letters to her and everything and convinced her to come over and marry him. He would write all these letters being like, oh, you're perfect, like, please come marry me. She would write back and be like, look, I think this is in your head. I think you think I'm too perfect. That's not me. But she came over and they got married. So his wife had a condition where her hearing was going and he was just a complete jerk about it. It was basically saying like basically said that her disability was affecting him negatively so like complete jerk about about all this and she's like listen dude i told you like listen <laughs> <laughs> i i told you i'm not this perfect picture you've got in your head but yeah complete jerk i mean arguably a good scientist everyone. Kelly here from this week's Let's Farmanize episode. So I actually realized after recording that I got some names mixed up for one particular story that we discussed in this episode. I apologize, I'm not a huge history buff, but I did think that this was an important story that needed to be discussed. So it was actually Flory, the rough colonial genius, not Chain, the temperamental continental, who wrote the nasty letters to his wife. In the original episode, I kind of painted Chain as a little bit more of a jerk than he maybe was. Now don't get me wrong, Chain, our temperamental continental, was definitely a jerk. He kind of had a superiority complex, and he was actually the one who really fought. He wanted Heatley to be his assistant, but he really talked down to him a lot, and Heatley said that he lost a lot of respect for Chain throughout their experience together. Although they did produce some really amazing results, not only in penicillin, but in a lot of other areas of science as well. But they were pretty much polar opposites. Heatley was kind of very polite, and Chain was just not. He kind of had the idea of the German lab where there's a hierarchy and basically only the people on top are important. And he's the guy on top. So he's going to talk down to Heatley and everyone else. So there was one instance that kind of shows like kind of how he was. So he needed a rare enzyme for one of his experiments. And Heatley was like, hey, I know exactly where to get this. I know the guy who we can get it from. So Chain ordered him to go get some, and when it arrived, Heatley was like, Hey Chain, we should send a thank you to the donor. And then Chain said, You can write him if you want, but he's not a very interesting or important person. So really not a lot of respect there. He also would refuse to include Heatley in publications that they worked on together and publications and like him being included and in how important his name was on everything was a really sore spot for him. And it was a common theme throughout the whole story with penicillin, like with headlines, if they said Flory and other scientists, he would be really upset because he wanted his name on everything. And also when Florey brought Heatley with him to America, Chain was upset because he thought it should have been him who was going. He considered Heatley's contributions to penicillin to be minor, and after Florey decided that Heatley was going to be the one to go, Florey's and Chain's relationship pretty much disintegrated after that. Um, even though whenever he talked to Flory about it, Florey was like, "Hey, this isn't about feelings. This isn't about anything like that. This is about just going to America, getting this produced. Like that's our priority. It's." Like not to hurt your feelings. So, as for the letter, the part that I pinned on chain when it was really Flory. So, a little background. So, Flory met Ethel, who ended up being his wife. She was a medical student who was three years below him at Adelaide University in Australia. She caught Flory's eye, and he used the excuse of, Hey, let's write this article together called Women in Medicine, because he wanted to get to know her better. So, they spent time together for the next two years. And during this time, Ethel got sick a couple times, she had two bouts of pleurisy, which is a condition where the layers of tissue that separate your lungs from your chest wall become inflamed. And this is commonly caused by infections, autoimmune disorders, and there are other causes as well. Since Flory had plans to leave Australia to go to Oxford, they were kind of unsure of their future. But I think Flory was kind of set on Ethel at this point. Over four years that he was gone, he wrote Ethel over 130 letters. Back in this day, I mean, it's Australia to Oxford. Like, these letters take a long time to get over there. So that's a whole lot of letters. And from the letters, it seems like he grew kind of a romanticized view of her. He was kind of painting her as the perfect person. And then... During these four years, she suffered a lot of different illnesses, including a disease that attacks the middle ear, which caused hearing loss. Um, But she did graduate as the only woman in her medical school class, so she made it. She's a doctor and she got an internship and she was working with children. She seemed to be aware that Flory was kind of seeing her as the perfect person and had this picture in his mind. And she was, I think she was pretty upfront about it in her letters. So for example, some of the letters that we're talking about. She says, I'm quite prepared to give the whole thing up when I marry you, meaning her medical practice. But in return, I must feel absolutely certain of your unreserved and entire love for the whole of my life. I thought I was certain, but your last letter shows me how little you know the real me. You still seem to think I ought to be some sort of inhuman angel instead of a quite typical modern girl with a terrific lot of weaknesses and a fair amount of intelligence and attractiveness. I'm giving up everything else I've got for you, Floss which I guess is her nickname for him. That ought to be proof enough that I love you. So from this letter, Flory kind of only picked up on the I love you part and not the, hey, I'm not a perfect person. So he sent her a letter back, once again, romanticized. And Ethel said back, I've told you time and time again that I was not by any means the perfect person you imagined me. I would quite agree with you. I've often wondered what it was in me that made you love me. But I suppose I must have forgotten that you endowed with me all the virtues you thought a woman ought to possess and so fell in love with a false image. It does seem most important that we should have a time to get to know each other, doesn't it? So, the two of them reunited in 1926. And apparently both of them were pretty disappointed because they've been apart for so long and I mean, they weren't what each other expected, but they got married about a month later and suffice it to say, it kind of just went downhill after that. Eventually, they only communicated by leaving notes on the table. One day, Ethel left Flory a list of complaints. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. I really wish I could read it, but I do have some experts of his 15 page response letter that I'll share with you. Obviously, not going to do all 15 pages, but here's some of the interesting stuff in it. He says... At great inconvenience, we lived in Surrey, where I was struck with horror when I realized how sick you were. You may say and honestly believe that you came at the time you did for love of me, but unfortunately, it then appeared to me that you had handed on your rather battered body to me after insisting on doing not only your general hospital work, but also the children's. To this point, I would kind of argue, you still asked her to marry you, though. She comes over, she's not what you're expecting, you're like, yep, let's get married anyways that point's kind of on you dude he then goes on to say in this letter Hi. my disappointment was and still is and always will be immense that you are even now not strong enough to share my pleasures as would a normal woman you must realize that you are not a physically normal woman I refer to your deafness. It is a tragedy for you. I'm fully aware of that, but you don't realize that this tragedy extends in ever-widening circles. You must accept my statement as true, that to talk to a deaf person for long periods of time is very exhausting. He goes on for a while with a point-by-point list covering probably what she had in her list detailing her grievances and responding. And it covers everything from their sexual relationship to saying that he needs her to make him a boiled egg for breakfast. I think my favorite part of the letter though is this. So he says, I make a few suggestions. One, realize your deafness is a handicap to others as well as yourself. Wear your earphones whenever possible. 2. Do not get angry unless you are sure you have heard aright. 3. Try to avoid picking your nose in my presence. That is a personal favorite of mine. 4. Wash your hair more often and by the introduction of a suitable amount of scent. Improve to smell. I know my breath smells frequently and perhaps you will think less badly of me if I tell you I avoid coming too near you when I know this is the case five don't nag at me perhaps other ways will occur to you of being patient with my peculiarities so basically Florian and chain were both jerks kind of in their own way i did put a little bit too much heat on chain when i got the name wrong though so i apologize for that so there you have it the actual true story since i got this part mixed up the first time kind of fitting because our topic was about a misrepresented story so there you go
1: And now, a word from our sponsor.
0: So Flory, Chain, and Heatley come across penicillin, so they start working with the mold. So they had a couple of experiments that they did, and they basically taking the mold and, like, making it into, like, this mold juice and just performing experiments with that. It obviously wasn't pure enough for, like, animals or humans, and they found that when they tried to purify it, that it lost all of its antibiotic properties, so... That's pretty frustrating. Actually, Fleming, with his um, brief work with penicillin, he did try to isolate it as well, but ended up giving up because it would just lose everything. He actually went on to do some research with sulfa drugs. So kind of interesting shift over there.
2: It's like going to the dark side of antibiotics. Right, yeah.
0: It's like
1: (laughs) like the golden age of sulfa drugs, too. I know. Mm -hmm.
2: He was like the... It was, like, ruled by the Sith Lords of the dark side of Sulfa. And then just all of a sudden... And it the Jedi? Yeah. Okay. But then he just went with Darth Vader. We would be honored if you would join us. Nice. Yeah,
0: because this is, like, yeah. This, is like, right after Sulfa drugs became a big thing and they're looking for other antibiotics... Because, I mean, like, really shortly before this, they didn't know a lot about antibiotics, obviously. And really shortly before this, it was kind of like, oh, well, you got a cut. Okay, well, <laughs> it's too bad. It's like
2: 60 years past Ignaz Simmelweis just telling everyone to wash hands. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not that much farther past. That was so. radical. Yeah. Yeah. Really got to wash your hands. Get my hands wet before
1: <laughs> surgery? I
0: don't yeah. think so. kidding me?
2: I need traction. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Infection, what's that? It's ghosts in your blood. I just rub my hands
2: <laughs> in my dirt before surgery. Yes,
0: <laughs> so they ran into a lot of problems with trying to purify penicillin. They were able to figure out how to get it from liquid to liquid. So it would go in water. They would freeze the water off once they had kind of purified it and everything. And then they were left with a brown powder. That was the first step with them trying to purify it. That was not pure enough for humans. So obviously they had to find something else. So they actually came up with, and Heatley is actually the one who came up with this, a way to get it from the mold juice to ether. But Heatley did have like a huge role in getting it purified. So once they had it pretty much purified, it's not good enough for people yet, but we're getting there. In the 1940s, they had, in May, they had the mouse protection trials. It had great results because they basically infected these mice With streptococcus, then they used the penicillin, and the ones who got the penicillin got better, and then the other ones ended up dying. That was really good results, and then they're like, okay, so this can work in animals, so let's try to get it into people. So with Fleming, when he was trying to purify it, he found that you could get the drug into ether, but you couldn't get it out. Hmm. So Heatley is the one who figured out how you get it out. That's why Heatley's considered the micromaster.
2: And now we know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't just some petty nickname that he gave them. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When Flory and Chain came across penicillin, it's actually kind of interesting with how they were able to get a culture because it was actually the mold juice was being used in labs to clean Petri dishes. So we've got what ends up being one of the biggest discoveries of all times and just being used to clean petri dishes because it kills the bacteria. When Heatley suggested that they could get the penicillin from the ether, he got it into alkaline water. His method was basically like a Rube Goldberg device called a countercurrent extraction process. And some of the items that were used in it were a discarded bookshelf, old bottles, glass tubing, and a doorbell. So, probably looked pretty crazy. Kind of like junkyard contraption, but... It's
2: definitely a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, it worked. They weren't able to get a whole lot out. You needed a lot of penicillin to treat patients, and they actually ran into shortages a lot when they were trying to do, like, basically treat people with the penicillin. With some of the earlier cases, they would actually treat a patient, and it was using like pretty much everything that they had, and they would actually um, collect their urine and get the penicillin back out and give it back to the patient. From (laughs) to. Yeah, so... (laughs) So, kind of crazy, and we think about, like, how common it is to see penicillin nowadays. You don't really think about, like, hey, there's going to be a shortage of penicillin. But early on, they had a really hard time, and they had to get all the culture and everything because a lot of mold doesn't yield a whole lot of antibiotics. And Heatley also had a role in, like, designing the dishes that they were growing this mold in because they just needed so much. He really did quite a bit. He was the Micromaster. They realized that they have a couple patients. They give them penicillin and these pa- these people are improving. So we're like, okay, it's working in people now. Um, but they keep running into the problem where they're running out of penicillin. So so I'm going to jump back a little bit to the mouse trials. With the experiments in the 1940s in May, they had the mouse protection trials and that actually occurred at the same time as the Dunkirk evacuation. Oh, wow. We're in World War II here. So it was kind of interesting to think about because when I originally was thinking about the discovery of penicillin, I was like, okay, yeah, it's in the 40s. I don't really, like, I kind of zero in on one thing, and I don't necessarily think about, like, everything that's going on around. I'm not a history buff or anything, so (laughs) I just, like, my brain doesn't work like that. That also was really difficult for them, and there are actually photos around Oxford where they're, between their time in the lab, they're digging, like, I guess their trenches. I don't know, like, you know what I mean? That put, like, a whole another factor in there. Um, And with the war, obviously with the reason that sulfa drugs were so successful was with war because like there were so many infections that they were able to treat. So they were like, well, we probably need to get this antibiotic off the ground to have an alternative. They finally um, ended up treating humans and they're realizing that it's working, but they keep running out of penicillin. Um, So they're like, all right, we need to figure out a way to get a whole lot more of this and fast. So somewhere along the line, actually visited their lab. He was basically like, dang, probably should have worked on that because it's going to be better than what we have right now. So it's reported that he had like some regret. Actually, there's an interesting story about a man named Harry Lambert who had, I believe it was meningitis. Fleming got some penicillin from Florey because he was like, hey, this guy's got infection. Can we use this penicillin? And he asked Florey, like, hey, what do you think about if I inject it into his spine? Which, what do you guys think about that? Seizures. Yeah. yeah. So it's not, not
1: good.
0: yeah, it's not something that we do. Probably not a great idea.
1: More, but like back then. I mean, if he's got meningitis, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. What what, what couldn't you do back in the day? Like honestly. I mean,
0: they're already <laughs> taking the antibiotic out of urine, so <laughs> you know. Is
1: this the same like pea penicillin that they're gonna put in this guy's spine? Probably it, is. It could have been, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean,
0: they're they're going through um, Heatley's methods of purifying it and everything, so.
1: That's putrid. pea sterile. It's I, not actually it's, sterile. Not even I, Let's go on the no. record. That's a joke. He's yeah. not sterile.
0: I mean, there are other drugs from urine, like Premarin, so.
1: That's from Florida. <laughs> yep.
0: So Fleming's like, hey, can I inject this into this guy's spine? Flory kind of comes back, and he's like, mm, no, probably not a good idea. And Fleming was like, well, I already did it. <laughs> So, um, so Harry Lambert actually recovered and luckily didn't have any seizures, but we know now a lot more that that's not the best method, but, um, it did work. And, and this is what really bothers me about the conventional story of penicillin and Alexander Fleming getting all the credit without doing the heavy lifting. He then goes to the press and is like, Hey, this stuff is great. Saving people's lives. And... Of course, how do you think everybody reacted to that type of news?
1: Uh, my first thought would be that they'd be pretty ecstatic about it.
0: Yeah, so like everybody's like, all right, we got to get this penicillin stuff. Yeah. Flory is like, dude, are you crazy? We are having, like, we have enough to treat one person on a good day. Like, what are you doing? So everybody's going crazy. There's this high demand for it, and, like, you can treat one patient at a time. So Flory kind of stayed quiet about it, didn't really make any comments to press or anything. So I think that's a big reason why Fleming is often associated with and gets the credit for penicillin, which, I mean, he has a role in it, but kind of rubs me the wrong way. In an effort to get more penicillin, Flory and um, Heatley come to the U.S., and they're going around to the drug companies being like, hey, can you please help us find a way to get like a huge amount of penicillin? Reportedly, Chain was upset that Florey didn't choose him. So another thing about him another being... Another
2: wrinkle in the hose, I swear.
0: Yeah, he's in his feelings a lot. Um... <laughs> I will say at this time, also back to Chain being like very much in the German lab mindset at the time, um, he was very much like, we need to get a patent on this. Flory was like, "Mm, no, it's going to help people like, let's just, let's just do it. Like, let's go. Um, And Chain's like, no, we should get a patent. So they don't end up getting a patent, but they come to the US and they're like working with these drug companies to try to get a lot more penicillin. They, it ends up, they develop a method that makes penicillins in like these giant vats. So eventually it does work out and they do get to have um, enough penicillin for everybody. They did run into some issues with, um, with like patents and everything. They originally had open communication with the U.S. companies, and then like once it got to be competitive, it was just a whole mess with the patents, as you can imagine. Then, of course, the discovery of penicillin well deserves a Nobel Prize. Everybody's looking at Alexander Fleming. They're like, this guy needs the Nobel Prize. Right. And then that kind of caused an uproar, and there were a lot of letters that were written. Saying, Hey, he shouldn't get it by himself. It needs to be either Flory and Chain or Fleming, Flory and Chain or some combination like that. They were like, Fleming shouldn't get it by himself. I honestly really agree with that. Didn't we
2: dive into this before? Wasn't there like, isn't there like a limit to the amount of people that can receive one Nobel Prize? Three. I think
0: it's three.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or an organization like the American Red Cross. That doesn't count as like a number of one people. person. Yeah. But that mm-hmm. in that case, it's not gifted to just a single individual. It's the organization. Right. So it's either three people or an organization.
2: Yeah. That's the problem with one too many person in the group. It's like, you can't, like,
1: the Nobel Prizes, I feel like it's almost, like, not a good thing. Because it's, I haven't heard of a non-controversial case of a Nobel Prize, especially mm-hmm. for medicine. Because it's always, like, a team of multiple people who yeah. uh, is involved in processes, like, Diabetes. We talked about that because it was four people on that team, but only two people got the Nobel Prize. I and mean, even like, even, even like the person whose name it's named after
2: is controversial in itself. Nobel. Yeah. Nobel, Alfred, Nobel. Alfred, Alfred Nobel.
0: Nobel. Oh, I didn't know about that.
2: Yeah. The dynamite guy. I mean, he made dynamite. Yeah. Okay. He, but he also made nitroglycerin, which was... Dynamite. Yeah. Dynamite. Also <laughs> knows dynamite.
1: And nitrostat. Let's not forget
2: that Adolf Hitler was also nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize.
1: what? For what?
2: Not starting a war in Europe in 1936. Ah. And then... What a humanitarian. then commencing a war in 1938.
0: When they were actually going to America, they realized that they've got this really valuable, I guess, product. Do you guys know, like, during war-torn times, like, you're trying to get um, from Oxford, you're trying to get over to America. And they're like, okay, how do we get this over? And, like, what if our lab gets destroyed? Like, what if... Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure that this research can continue? So, do you guys have any ideas of how you would go about trying to get this mold to America? Trying to, if your lab gets bombed, like, what would you do to make sure that you still got this culture?
1: Submarine.
0: <laughs> I don't know if they had access to a submarine. <laughs> I think all the Probably um, not.
1: Yeah, they were busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they were a little busy. busy. <laughs> the, uh, sinking the Lusitania. <laughs> That's not the same one. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Yeah.
2: You're about 40 years off, though. Oh, is that World War One? That's like the Spanish War.
1: The sinking of the Lusitania? I'm pretty sure that was like 1898. Okay. We'll talk, we'll, we'll do a corrections for this, if <laughs> necessary. I don't know. Kelly, do you know where the Lusitania was sinking? I don't know. I'm hoping it's 1898, so I don't sound like a, like a Mickey. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, how would you sneak it uh, across oceans, across the pond?
0: So they actually came up with this idea, which is actually the title of Eric Lax's book. It's called The Mold in Dr. Flory's Coat. So they actually rubbed mold spores into their clothing to make sure that if they get somewhere or if they have to evacuate or do anything, they can regrow this sample.
1: So it wasn't a pathogenic mold in any way. It wasn't like Aspergillus or Candida. It was just... It's own thing, penicillin. Like they didn't know what the the mold was at the time. Like it wasn't going to hurt them. They knew that, right?
0: Well, yeah. Whenever Fleming first saw this mold, he asked a colleague to identify it. And he was like, all right, that's penicillium rubrum. It's actually not. It's actually penicillium notatum. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but it is a penicillium mold. And that's where we get the name penicillin. So yeah, they just rubbed these mold spores into their clothing so that they made sure that if anything happens, if we have to flee, if we have to do anything we've still got it, we can restart. I thought that was pretty genius.
1: I mean, it's it's clever because that's the best way to like, I mean, at, at that time it was probably, you know, a really volatile situation. That's not following Simon
2: advice, though. <laughs> rubbing mold on your clothes—I don't think that's smart. You could like sew it into one of your pockets in your lab coat or something, like a secret pocket. Yeah, like a secret pocket, or like a pocket, but you sew it shut, and then that one's well. Just then you've got like, like a, a
1: conspicuous bulge, <laughs> <laughs> just full of mold. Oh, that's my colostomy bag. Don't don't look. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: just full of mold, I don't mold think juice. Have
1: colostomy bags <laughs> back, I I really back in Lusitania so. times. <laughs> all right, we're googling it right now.
0: <laughs> what are we Googling?
1: When the Lusitania sank. Oh my gosh! All, all of our high school.
0: I don't even know. I've never heard of the Lusitania. I don't know
1: what all started, of our high school history. It started like a. World a. War Two. No,
2: no, no, it did not. There is no way. It's either World War
1: One or World War. Was the invasion of Poland right or before or War II. War II. War II. after Lusitania. Lusitania? So we can get back to. Them. How do you spell Lusitania? L u s i t a n i a.
0: Is that right? Is that what actually mean,
2: that right? That is right. Just- Sunk by German U boat. So that's probably good for you. It's World War One. Okay. So we were like, what year was this? Well, I was half right, you were just whole wrong. No, because mine you, <laughs> you overshot it. It's prices, right? Said it's
1: either World I. If War... you go over, it doesn't count. We're going back to the penicillin story now.
0: <laughs> so luckily they didn't really have any issues. They didn't have to flee or anything, but still a good idea. Arguably a kind of gross one, but not oh. a bad idea. They end up going over to America in their nasty mold clothes. <laughs> <laughs> And with the American drug companies, they end up finding a way to produce a lot of the penicillin in, like, huge vats and everything. But because they didn't patent it, like, chain-warned them, they didn't get any money for the penicillin. The American drug companies are ultimately the ones who profited. And I imagine they probably profited a lot.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. Um, I mean, it's
1: still on shelves today, mm -hmm. 80 years later. More than one kind of penicillin, too. There's a whole— How many penicillins are out there? like two what
0: do you mean there's penicillin g and k VK.
1: k that's it you said an extra one which one would you say
0: penicillin g penicillin k right
1: yeah v vk isn't it just vk man isn't man, that one okay. I, don't I don't know, know. yeah pen vk 500
2: oh, maybe we're looking this like up
1: benzathine benzathine that's g well i mean isn't it different i think it's penicillin B- g benzathine I don't know about all
0: this. So penicillin,
1: about like amoxicillin and all the other cillins?
0: Penicillin V. It's a derivative. Who cares? Is given by mouth. Penicillin G is IV. Yeah.
1: Oh. What's the OG penicillin? If you think no, about IV. all the derivatives, yeah. you said OG. I said IV. It was, it was no, not that funny. Was stupid. It was not funny. Sorry. <laughs> I got this <it> funny.
0: <laughs> Actually, interesting that you bring up the different penicillins. The penicillin that... Uh, the culture that they had in America and the culture that they had in Florey's lab were actually slightly different. Interesting. I don't remember which one was which, but they were slightly different. The, the British yeah. penicillin and the American penicillin. And I think there were others as well, but there was... Among all the places that were trying to grow penicillin and have a culture of penicillin, among those, there were slight variants. And actually, I want to say... I, ha- I will have to check exactly where it was. I want to say it was Indiana. I th- it's one of the states that starts with an I, I'm pretty sure. I think it was in, in Indiana. Someone actually found like a moldy melon that had the mold on it. And that proved to be like a really good source of the penicillium mold.
2: Oh, nice. So, so did they have to use the mold clothes? I'm imagining they didn't have to use those.
0: Oh, the mold clothes? No, they, uh, that was like their safeguard. They did rub it in their clothes, though.
2: Imagine like, them walking into the American drug companies smelling like dirty
1: cheese and right. just like, "We're here, yo, guys, we got an idea." Yeah. <laughs> and then they just start undressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Whoa.
0: <laughs> they're like, "All right, let me shake this out of my, <laughs> my coat real quick." So yeah, eventually, for the discovery of penicillin, they got the Nobel Prize, and it ultimately went to Fleming, Chain and Flory. So our MicroMaster, unfortunately, did not make the cut. Not Heatley? No. I'm really mad about that because I think that Heatley, especially because he was able to take Fleming's problem where he's like, all right, I've got this stuck in ether. I can't get it out. And he solved that. So, I feel
1: like his work was most critical. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, Fleming didn't do anything. Other than, like, see some mold. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Have a dirty kitchen.
2: I mean, really?
0: Yeah, he was... Another interesting tidbit about um, Fleming, he was kind of a weird guy. He worked, obviously, a lot with bacteria. He did notice that um, bacteria could mutate and everything, and that it would be different colors, and he would actually make little Petri dish paintings with bacteria.
1: I did know this about him, and I thought that was so, pretty cool. We did that in micro. we did that. that in micro, yeah. 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 In honor yeah, of Fleming. Weird. And then we licked it. Oh,
0: Then you took some penicillin. Yeah, just us. Okay. (laughs) It upsets me that Heatley didn't get involved because honestly, without him, there's no penicillin. Like it's just mold. Mold juice. Like we're not gonna be able to use that for people. Yeah, that's pretty much the whole story of penicillin.
2: Like, I guess. I mean (laughs) sure he was the discoverer, but I mean, I don't know. Heatley was robbed. Heatley was robbed. For sure. I think Chain was, like, the smart one out of everyone.
1: I think. But he was the rude one. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was rude. But, but he, he was rude in a smart kind of way. Still, I mean, some credit is due, but... Yeah. Heatley, I feel like Heatley was it was most instrumental because without that single Ochem step that he had, being able mm-hmm. to separate it or add it to the ether and then separate it from the ether with his... Uh, fancy bookshelf machine, which I've got to find a picture of. That sounds really cool. I
0: think there might be one in this book that, that I can show you. That seems
1: like the most most complicated, most instrumental, but very critical to the development of let's the see, overall drug. Who are you
2: going to take out, though? I feel like Heatley was the cool guy who was just like, alright, you guys can have it or something like that.
1: Without Heatley, though, like at that point they would have just like, we can't figure out what to do next, let's give up and move on to something else. True that. Who's the guy that stuffed it in their, in their coat again?
0: Um. So... It was, I think, it was all three of them. All I know, them. I know for sure, Flory and Heatley did because they came over to America.
2: It's, the book says Dr. Flory's coat, though, right? Yeah. Um, oh, well, he gets it just for that.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I actually don't know whose idea it was to put it in their clothes, <laughs> but it's—I mean—it's a pretty good one.
1: Do you think the author is biased in Flory's favor?
0: Um, I don't. I don't really know. It was his lab, and Flory did a lot to, like, through this whole process obviously this research needs funding so flory did a whole lot with like trying to get funding and so he was doing like a lot of the behind the scenes like logistical stuff so i don't know i i honestly think that i think that he did a good job kind of leveling the playing field and like telling as it is i don't think he likes shane very much because <laughs> he did include um like all those letters like bad mouthing his wife and stuff so oh
2: jeez. yeah i take it back Shane doesn't
1: deserve anything. The one who was nasty to his deaf wife. Yeah. Maybe he (laughs) just thought, maybe he would like talk trash and then just hope she couldn't hear. Maybe. Imagine. (laughs) Gosh, my wife can't cook. And she's like, I don't know. That specifically? I'm just spitballing. God, I wish my wife wasn't deaf.
0: <laughs> yeah, and there's other stuff in those letters about like I don't know. I think it was something about like how her like her breath smelled or something. And he's like, I try not to come around you when my breath smells, so don't do that to me no, or something fair. along those well, lines. Honestly,
2: a little like <laughs>
1: if you come in, if you come and you're like
2: all up on me with your bad breath, just wait till
1: you get married. I'm just gonna be like, step off. <laughs> You'll become more accustomed with morning breath. She knows what I mean. Okay. <laughs>
0: That's the story of penicillin. It's not just the accidental discovery. There's a lot more legwork to it.
1: So I don't feel like Fleming is culpable in the lack of credit for Heatley, but there's definitely more credit owed to Heatley. But,
0: but who that, do you yeah. take off? Fleming.
1: Fleming, but it's not his fault. Well,
2: Fleming, yeah, but he discovered well, it, so it's really hard to take but him off. It's not
1: like he intentionally stole, stole credit.
0: But he is the one who went to the press when they had enough for, like, not even a oh, yeah, full he patient. Just yeah,
1: just screwed up the whole thing. Yeah, kill Fleming. <laughs> he sucks yeah well
2: they're all dead anyway
1: yeah <laughs> I don't know are they
2: are they I one don't know one of have. them's like 100 years old
1: still alive <laughs> go fight them <laughs> we go? I'm sure they're all dead because right. at this point in time they've mold in their
2: clothes in, they have
1: yeah, to be like dead also <laughs> but in like the Lusitania times they were already 30 or 40 they're not in the Lusitania yeah. so by now they'd be what
2: they'd be like infants 50? in the Lusitania time 50 yeah well, this is 1964 I don't
1: understand the passage of time I don't either
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh Shout out to your um, World War I episode where you mentioned that there's that whole story about Churchill and mm-hmm. like the whole... The
2: Sulfa thing?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so he actually didn't get penicillin. He got Sulfa drugs. So yeah. I was really happy that you guys mentioned that. It like made me
1: happy. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, we try to get things right mm-hmm. on podcasts. We don't always get everything 40% right. 40% of the time we're 100% right. <laughs> I'd say that's, that's fair. That's appropriate. But yeah. So I think every opportunity that I get to talk about penicillin, I'm going to give a shout out to Heatley from now on, Mm -hmm. the uh, underappreciated scientist.
2: Alexander laming.
0: Yeah. And actually how I-
2: Alexander farting. Oh (laughs) God. That was worse. That was terrible.
0: How I actually got to reading this book was a professor recommendation because my personal statement for pharmacy school, the first line was, my path to pharmacy school was much like the discovery of penicillin, messy and unplanned, but produced something
2: powerful. Hey. yeah
0: yeah good sentence right like
2: my yeah. name is Calvin <laughs>
0: and so in my interview he was like this is pretty cool like how do you think of it and I was like honestly I just woke up one day and it was in my brain and I was like we're going with it and he asked me he was like what do you know about the discovery of penicillin and I was like oh Alexander Fleming the dirty dishes and he was like no read this book so the mold in Dr. Florey's code
1: Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.